0: Today's episode of the Gold Cast is sponsored by Villains Week. Our Top 11 Villains Week begins today. So, as we mentioned before, this is the beginning of our Top 11 Villains Tournament. And today we're starting with action movies, suspense thrillers, and we're going from all decades, all eras. Anybody is on the list, anyone's on the board. Uh, But before we get too far into it, Raymond, why don't you let them know where they can find us? You
1: can always like us on facebook.com slash thegoldcast, and you can follow us on Twitter at the underscore goldcast, and be sure to subscribe to us via Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and Stitcher, all under the same moniker of the Goldcast. Like, subscribe, and comment because we certainly want to get your feedback
0: on what is going to be a very fun episode. All right, and then Candlestick Will, where can they find us if they want to talk to us directly about this top 11
2: or any top 11 list? Twitter's the easiest way. You can go to each one of our accounts or you can go straight to the source at top11podcast, top11podcast.
0: Awesome. And then what is your specific account if they want to reach out to you directly? Right here, Candlestick Will. Yeah.
1: Raymond, what about yourself? you can always find me on twitter at ray solis
0: or instagram at ray solis one awesome and then you can find me on at uh, at at i am rudy third i am rudy three r d all right here we go guys our villains week the first the first round in our top 11 villains tournament and today we're going by genre for this tournament and today we're going action villains action movies suspense movies thrillers all those were kind of on the board but in general like the overarching uh the overarching theme is action villains from any decade here we go let's go let's begin the greatest podcast intro in the game first let's get busy
2: san francisco
0: are you ready ready? this is the gold cast (laughs) Boom! Welcome to another edition of the Goldcast. We are the Voice of the Bay. I'm your host, Rudy Salisa III, and with me is my brother, my co-host.
1: Raymond the I, baby.
0: And our esteemed co hosts Candle, Stick, Will. Boom! Alright guys, here we go. Our next Top 11 uh, podcast is here. Now, I always like to kick this off... To you, Candlestick Will, I like when you kind of set us off and set the tone. Let's talk about the overall direction for this next tournament that we're doing.
2: So this is, uh, you know, what makes movies interesting is when you have the protagonist versus the antagonist, and the antagonist is also up to the same level. Um, And that's, you know, some of the most interesting movies ever made have great villains, and they're always more interesting. That even sometimes in the protagonist, sometimes the movie's even based on the villain. So that's what this is all about, is trying to break down who the best are. But it's such an overwhelming task to do it if it was just all movies right now. So it's easier to go by genre. And this first genre is, you know, all the humans, uh, the act, the action movie, suspense, thriller, you know, films who are the most evil, most vicious, most awesome, depending on your perspective, villains in movie history.
0: Nice. And see, that was gonna, that's going to be my first question before we get into this list, because this is obviously a very subjective list for all of us. And so, Raymond, I want to go to you first. When you were putting together your list, how did you determine what was going to be on your list? What was the criteria for your top 11 villains of all time?
1: Well, they had to be human because science fiction and fantasy are separate categories. So that was kind of an easy one. And even though there's films where villains, you know, look human, but they're not, you know, for example, The Devil's Advocate, Al Pacino, you know, he's the devil in that one. Um, You know, uh, so that was an easy one to kind of
0: put aside for later category. That's if he'll even end up on a list. Let me ask you a question real quick. What what genre and this is coming from a writer who writes who writes television film all the time. What genre do you think Devil's Advocate falls under? I think it's like a I guess kind of a fantasy thriller drama. I
1: would you know, almost it call
2: ha- horror fantasy. It's like
1: horror drama.
2: It certainly it certainly has the feeling of a drama until you realize you're actually dealing with the devil.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because there yeah, there's there's a lot of conflict that builds up between Keanu Reeves and Charlie Theron. and of course Al Pacino's kind of pulling the strings in the background the whole time, you know. Purposely egging them on to get to this climactic. I mean, if Al Pacino uh, wasn't
2: literally the devil, like if that wasn't literally his character, it's it's just a drama, you know. It's just a thriller, you know what I mean? Like,
1: yeah, a drama with like some kind of corrupt boss, right? Exactly. You know, at, at the top of a firm.
2: So it it, ch- it changes so, yeah, to that. You know, is it fantasy? Is it horror? I mean, I'm kind of with you, Rudy. It's like so, probably somewhere in the middle there. But I think that's also what makes these lists interesting is that some of us might have someone on our list this uh, this week for action villains and somebody else might not have that same person. And then when we go to horror, they have that person on their horror list because they they think that movie is more of a horror film. So that, that's part of part part of the process.
1: Yeah. And that's cool. And devil's advocate is actually a really good example of a character that kind of falls in between. Um, He could go either way. Um, And in fact, I think even in the description of the film on IMDb, it does say drama like horror um I don't know if it's as fantasy but the the concept of the devil can definitely be looked at as a as a fantasy. Right. But I mean for me it was a human and you know I kind of focused on you know what action films I had seen that left a lasting impression. I didn't just say well if you were in the 80s or 90s then you're good. I mean a lot of the action films I saw are in those decades but there's plenty of really good ones between 2000 and now as well. So, but it's but that's but we're talking about you know forty years worth of film, so and there's more shitty films than good films. So thankfully that it wasn't you know it's not like you're and and I'm kind of picky with films too, just because you know I I went to film school for a little bit too. So having some of that information that that backyard baseball info does definitely play into how I I uh, I judge films. And so for me it had to be. An action film that i saw so if i didn't see it then it's not on the list even if it was a good action film and um, it had to be you know a villain that i thought made a lasting impression um and that could be in a action film where the villains more comedic that could be in an action film you know it just i i didn't have stringent uh boundaries as far as that went sub If it was an action film but also a comedy action then I
0: considered it. That doesn't necessarily mean they came on my list, though. But that's how I did it. How about you, Candlestick Well, How did you go about developing your list? What was the criteria for picking your top eleven action villains of all time?
2: I mean, I started the same way Ray did. It was I realized that basically it came down to you know were they a hundred percent human? Because our other you know our other categories would suggest that anyone who's would be considered a, a kind of more of a fantasy type character. Um, that that's more appropriate, the the section they belong in. Um, But then just kind of going through some of my favorite films and just kind of seeing, you know, was the antagonist the more interesting character? Um, Was the antagonist uh, memorable, like Ray said? And I think ultimately that lasting impression is what it all comes down to anyway, because if you don't really remember the, the bad guy, then why are we talking about him? Um, but at the same time, it's like, in some of these cases, they were the most interesting character by far in the film. And in some of the cases, they were just toe to toe with the, with the protagonist. So usually in most cases, it's one of the two there where it's either toe to toe or they actually outshined the protagonist. And, um, but you know, to Ray's point too, it's, you know, if I didn't see the film, then it didn't, it didn't have, um, a place on my list because, you know, it, it. I. It's not. To me, I don't think it's responsible to rank something you haven't seen.
0: Yeah, I agree. I. I chose for my list. I started from the nineteen eighties on, so I basically stuck to. All the movies that have that have taken place while I was alive that I've seen. I've never been the biggest fan of seventies film anyway. Anyways, so anything pre nineteen eighty is not going to end up on my list. A, I'm not super familiar with the decade and everything I have seen. I've never been that big of a fan of. So it was pretty. That kind of helped a lot for mine. And as usual. You know, I try. I tried to go decade by decade, and I started first with the easiest ones. You know, who are the ones just off the top of my head, my favorite villains of all time? That when I just think villains in action movies, who comes to my mind? And I started with those guys, and then I started really going, looking at other people's lists, looking at IMDb lists, and kind of going through the decades and just seeing, just full on, just who played these antagonists throughout these films. And I think that's something that's really important that you talked about. That. Was one of my criterias. You had to be the antagonist, an antagonist in the movie. Like for instance, Victor Corleone and Michael Corleone wouldn't make my list because they were technically the protagonists, even though they were bad people. They were the they are the heroes of the movie, and so the movie and the story is told through the protagonist's eyes. So I didn't really. The only film where a movie is oftentimes will will be told through an antagonist's eyes is during like horror films. It tends to tends to stick more to that. But that was my one thing. You couldn't be. You couldn't be the protagonist in your movie. If you were the protagonist and we were rooting for you the whole time, then you you were that took you off my list, my personal list. I tried to make sure I tried to spread it out. try to make sure I got every decade into the tiers. You know, try to have someone represented from the two thousands, from the eighties, from the nineties in all the brackets. You know, to, to who who lists. But at the same time, at the same time, I kind of do the same thing. I try to go every tier, every bracket that we have. Who who makes each bracket, but then have the bracket tell a logical story that peaks from 11 all the way down to one, you know, so that it still gets better and better as it goes along. Even if I'm including, trying to include guys from different eras, I I don't, I don't just put someone from the 2000s, let's say into the second bracket, because I need someone from the 2000s. If they don't make it, they don't make it. And in fact, I don't think, I think in my middle bracket, my middle bracket there's well there's one there's no one from the 80s in the middle bracket, for instance, you know um but I also thought what made this this was easier. I thought it got harder to find so the the well of an, of villains is it's a bigger pool in the 80s and 90s, but then once superhero movies come in in the 2000s, it starts to really thin out. but I thought the performances were even stronger. Like you have a lot less one-dimensional villains and the action movies that are good, the action movies that do uh, that are actually really interesting that come out in the last 20 years in the 21st century, I find that the villains oftentimes are, are a lot more intriguing. So while the pool was thinner in the two, 21st century, I thought a lot of the performances were better and the pool was a lot deeper in the 80s and 90s but a lot thinner, th- a, lot, a lot slimmer pickings. Does that make sense?
2: Well, I think it's also the evolution of action films in general is that Audiences were attracted more to movies where the od- antagonist was interesting and had a more well developed um, character, and it wasn't just some random bad guy that had no real connection to reality um, and just happened to be the one, you know, holding the gun or just happened to be the one, you know, terrorizing people. Um, and when producers and directors and actors saw that, they, you know, um they wanted to pursue that more and writers started writing more interesting characters Mm -hmm.
0: yeah it's uh it's very interesting and i'm uh i'm very very excited to see where your guys lists go how are these all going to evolve where we're going to go so um as usual raymond we always start with you so let's start with uh your first section of the list
1: All right, at uh, number 11, I've got Colin Sullivan of The Departed. I've got Annie Wilkes from Misery. I've got Stan Sealed from The Professional. And I've got John Doe from Seven.
0: Ooh. All right. At number 11, I have Bodie, Patrick Swayze from Point Break. I have (laughs) Caster Troy at number 10. Ah, uh, played by both John Travolta and Nicolas Cage, which is the uh, one of the few that the the antagonist is played by one actor in the same movie. And I actually love both their performances. as Caster Troy, uh, Raymond, similar to you, but in a different spot at number nine, Annie Wilkes, played by Kathy Bates in Misery, and number at number eight, Anton Chigurh, Javier Bardem, No Country for Old Men. Nice
2: How about a you, one. Count Sickwell? Nice. Um, Well, I'll just say it now, Uh, Annie Wilkes will not be on my list because I'm going to have her on a different list. Um, Got it. So for number 11, I have Howard Payne from Speed. Number 10, I have Hans Beckert from the movie M from 1931. It's an amazing film. Number 9, Anton from No Country for Old Men. And then number 8, I've got a tie, same actor, John Doe from 7 and Verbal Kent from Usual Suspects. So break it down for us, Ray.
1: Well, I picked Colin Sullivan, played by Matt Damon, in 1996, The Departed, because it's one of my favorite Scorsese films. I I like all of Scorsese, but I just really like when he goes into the uh, organized crime genre. And Colin Sullivan was just a villain. I couldn't stand the entire film because I was rooting for Leo, and Colin Sullivan just seemed to always have—he was the golden boy— out of that crew that was working with uh, Jack Nicholson's character. And I just, and I was so pissed because um, you do, you do get you as a viewer, you feel like there is some vindication at the end of the film. Cause he gets whacked by Mark Wahlberg's character. But before that film, and this is 96. So there's no spoiler warnings here. If you haven't seen it, then that's 2006, your fault. but the um, uh, uh, de- departed. Yes. The departed. Yes. But, um, but I mean, um, but the, I was, I remember watching the film and the fact that Leo dies before him, just the fact that Leo died in the first place just irritated me. Well, and the, and the, and the, the way that, he died he, too, just, yes. And the way he so died and then the fire. fact that he, <laughs> Yes. And then and then he yeah, it's a very abrupt and in your face and that's just great filmmaking. But at the same time I'm like, the the guy I wanted to die is still alive. How is this possible? <laughs> and so I just couldn't stand him. Um but, but it was great. I thought he did a good job. He was he was very charming at times. At the same time he was a absolute professional liar. He's like the, the best of the best liar you could possibly be in that film and I, I thought he was excellent. As far as Annie Wilkes goes the this uh, Annie Wilkes can cross over into a couple different genres here. So I'm not surprised that you said that um, Kathy Bates. Uh, I wanted to have uh, I thought Kathy Bates was excellent in this film. You know, she only really does this to one person in the film and she's not like a serial killer. She doesn't kill a lot of people. But yep. the what what she does. And yeah, exactly what she does in that film. You know, and and it's even worse in the book. But what she does in the film is just you get you're so captivated, and you're just like, oh my god, this person is insane. And she irritates you. She irritated me in that film too, because there's points where. She's like being nice and all grandma-y and, and, and it seems like it's good. And then then she just flips, you know, this, this, this bipolar. I don't know if, what it was. It's a psychotic, that's for sure. But I had to have her in there. I mean, and that performance won her an Academy Award. Uh, I thought it was an excellent uh, performance, even though this isn't the top 11 best villain performances. Uh, but, I, but her performance definitely made, you know, it made that role. If it wasn't for that, you know, she probably wouldn't be on the list. And I have Stansfield, Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman is one of my favorite actors. He's in my top ten favorite actors of all time. I've I've watched almost every single film he's done. And uh, Stansfield in The Professional is just a piece of shit. He's a he's a again he's like a he's like a Colin Sullivan, you know. Uh, only he's not working with organized crime, but he's he he's he's just corrupt and he just doesn't give a shit and he kills a family in the very beginning of the film he he doesn't kill the the son one of his one of the other guys blindly shoots and kills the four-year-old boy but he kills the daughter the mother and the father um and i was just like dang and it was just like and he doesn't even think twice about it he shoots the daughter in the hallway he shoots the mother in the bathtub um that was a beautiful it was a great shot too of all of all those kills and he just doesn't care. He almost killed the like something so loose screwed his head. Just like 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 there must have been a progression to this because he obviously did the right things to become a DEA agent and to be in a, a high ranking agent at that. But then for him to be who he is by the time we get to him as the viewer, it's like what the hell happened to this and guy? There's he plenty. There's plenty of movies out there where the
2: police are just super corrupt from jump. So yeah, becoming a DEA yeah. agent doesn't necessarily mean he lived a clean life at any point
1: right right and i mean even
2: in <laughs> well i'm saying i mean if, you, if you've if you've seen serpico it's like that's that's what police that's yes, what the police that's are like. a great one too
1: yeah and and in, even in the beginning of the film there's an old lady asking what's going on what's going on and he's like he said go back inside and then he he shoots a warning shot at like an 80 year old woman <laughs> in a hallway before he goes at, this is after he's capped the family uh mind you he's just sitting outside smoking a cigarette it's just like a psychotic character and he does that weird he did he, i love the, the character um, uh, uh, bits that Gary Oldman added to the role where he does like the weird twitchy thing when he swallows the pill. He looks up, he looks up above and does this weird twitchy thing. He has these weird looks in his eyes all the time. He's always sweating, so he's clearly on drugs. And then John Doe, uh, Kevin Spacey. Uh, what more can you say about Seven? Um, not Kevin Spacey the person, but John Doe the character, the villain. Uh, an excellent villain in, in an excellent film. Um, I love psychological. I believe this is um, David Fincher film, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And David Fincher is this is this is his bread and butter outside of Alien Three. Like he's this is all this is the the only type of film that he sticks to. And Alien Three was his first film too. And that film actually looks good now, juxtaposed to the aliens that we've gotten since then. But uh, that's another podcast for another day where we'll talk about (laughs) the shittiness of the Alien franchise. (laughs) But but yeah, but John Doe, Kevin Spacey, amazing performance Uh, and that was Seven, that was 1995 with a very young Brad Pitt. Uh, I love how impatient and 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 kind of a whiny bitch he is in that film but uh but john doe is really amazing just the the cool calmness and the intelligence it just really kind of you're just kind of trying to you're just trying to figure him out and you just can't figure him out you know i didn't figure that film out uh the big twist and uh and uh sure enough he he i believe he, he ends up even though he dies he he dies the way he wanted to he completes the whole journey for, for him. And that's the the part that kind of gets kind of irritates you as a viewer. You're like, damn, he won, but he didn't, you know, he, he's, he's dead. So he's not going to kill any more
2: people, but he got to complete his whole, his whole arc of of serial murders that he was trying to accomplish. Well, and how many, how many times does the bad guy get to win in a movie? You know, and, and, you know, it's like, well, I'll, I'll get to mine in a second, but in both of those roles that Kevin Spacey played in 95, you know, as John Doe and Verbal Kent, he gets, he wins the, he's the bad guy. The bad guy wins at the end. And it's two of the most incredible endings of films we've ever seen. And part of it's because of how rare that is.
1: It's funny that you say that too, because uh, as, as we're sitting here talking about it, I'm now realizing that Kevin Spacey has been a part of two of those films that, that throw you for a loop at the end back when that was not a big
0: trendy thing to do. What about you? What about you, Rudy? So as I mentioned before, I started with Bodie, Patrick Swayze, Point Break. This is Point Break is one of those action movies that it's it's part guilty pleasure, part awesome action <laughs> yeah. movie, part like over the top, part super dramatic. I mean, it's like it's a it's a melting pot of a lot of different things, and um, I think it's a really good film. It's he, Bodie is is he's one of those villains that you kind of want to punch in the mouth and you kind of want him to be your best friend at the same time. <laughs> And Patrick Swayze, he just brought, he brings, and he does this with every character he's ever brought. He he always brought this vulnerability to guys, and he was able to make characters very tough, but also just seem really emotional and like really grounded in a way. And and he's like this hippie, hippie like villain who who not only not only is he not only is he he's breaking the law, but he also sees like the, he has this spiritual esoteric sense about surfing and about the 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 kind of bohemian lifestyle that they live which do which is juxtaposed with like straight up burglary i mean robbing and willing to murder if need be and the juxtaposition of these two dichotomies makes for just a really fascinating villain and i, I he plays it so earnestly you believe him so much and it really comes down to the performance for me and i I just love this character. I love this movie. It's uh that the the ending scene when they're jumping out of the plane is insane. Yeah, he does his own.
1: He did his own stunts.
0: Yeah, he did. The Most the, of them the chase anyways. through all through all the, the through all the houses. He throws the dog at Keanu Reeves. Oh, that's my favorite when, part. <laughs> I love that part when he when he finally asks him to go. He wants to go go on that one last wave, and that's how he's going to go out, which is very dramatic. Just a really good film. And uh, I really love Patrick Swayze. And I was like, you know what? I wanted to put him in my number 11 spot because I just thought he deserved to be on the list as, of top 11 action villains of all time. At number 10, Caster Troy from Face Off, John Travolta, and Nicolas Cage. I I love Face Off. Face Off is so ridiculous. <laughs> but action movies, action movies themselves... Tend to get are pretty ridiculous in the eighties and well, nineties. Essentially, and John Woo movies tend is that, to get
2: ridiculous too. I was going
1: to say, wasn't that a John Woo movie? He loves that exaggerated action.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, and and they really, if you really think about it, the the only reason they're they're so exaggerated, quote unquote, is because. They're actually they're no more exaggerated than the superhero movies of today, but superhero movies get to break the rules because they're all superheroes. And in the '80s and '90s, you had humans like very close to doing things that that uh, superheroes could do. And Matrix finally said, "Screw it! Like let's just give them powers." I mean, they basically went all that way, or like the way kung fu movies would do. But Castro Troy, the thing I enjoy about this character is that even though Nicolas Cage isn't playing for that long. He is equally as bombastic and kind of and they're, they're both you could kind of see the difference in their performances that Travolta's is obviously a lot less manic and a lot more controlled. And Nicolas Cage, just like how Nicolas Cage, when he flips and goes into John Travolta's character, he brings that kind of manic craziness that Cage has. But I just liked both the performances and seeing them back to back. And, I, and Face Off is, to me, one of the best action movies of the last 40 years. And I thought, you know what? Why not put this on? Because if you get two actors playing the same villain in the same movie, and that is, that virtually never happens. So I, I really liked Castor Troy, I had to put that there at number 10. Number nine, Annie Wilkes, I agree with you. Easily could go on horror. Uh, I decided to put her here because we uh, the suspense thriller aspect of it, I think that Misery misery you is definitely a horror film but i think it's probably best suited as a suspense thriller and so that's why i put her here and plus it was the only woman that ended up on the list and i wanted to have one girl on the list here at 8 anton chigurh Javier bardem no country for old men no country for old men not only was it my favorite movie of that year it is one of my favorite books and anton is so strange he is in in a you know, villains most I actually all all great villains are pretty eccentric. that's 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 just across the board. You know, everyone we've named, none of them are really like, oh, he's so normal. like, no, no, there's there's a heavy dose of eccentricity that comes with villains. But there is something so disturbing about Anton because he is for me, as a viewer and as a writer and as an actor, he's impossible to figure out. I, I don't understand like why he flips the coins and why he makes people call their own fate. I, I don't quite understand. And even though he explains it, he talks about it in the movie, he talks about it in the book, there is this illogical logic to his existence. And, you know, he talks about it. He talks about, um, you know, how he kind of, he likes to mess with reality. He likes to step in and, and divert reality and, and challenge what it is. And there is this very deep, almost philosophical journeyness to him that's coupled with just this insane, senseless violence. And he's such a nasty, cold-blooded killer. He's like, he's almost like the Terminator meets the strange philosophy of Bodie. <laughs> it's almost like you take, you take. <laughs> Two pieces of these guy's personality, and you put it together. But he's like one part, one part Terminator, one part Bodhi, and I don't know, one part something else. I think maybe by the time we get to the end of this, I'll figure out what that third part is. But uh, he, he's, he's like, he's a mix of a couple different things, and I find him so unsettling because he is also almost completely devoid of a personality. He is so cold, and I think that's the thing that I found. Um, to be completely fascinating about the performance, e- emotionless like, like a Terminator, like a Terminator, man, like he's just so terrifying, and it's coupled with the fact that he he is so good at his job, and then here he goes just wandering through life like just randomly executing violence or or putting people into positions where they have to call call the fate to their own violence, like just for no reason, like just because he's bored or he's just at the gas station, and uh, I I find that. To be so interesting, and and uh, the I thought Javier Javier Bardem's performance really not only did it did it uh, was excellent in the in the movie, but also was a like the a perfect interpretation of the book. Like like even though even if they didn't have all the lines from the book in her, in there, the way he performed, I'm like that is that guy. That's that guy in the book, and that's that guy in the movie. And uh, yeah, he's all time like all time one of my favorite villains of all time.
2: All right, counsel. Well, what about you, buddy? So, at number eleven, I had uh, Howard Payne from Speed. Uh, I think Dennis Hopper is uh, fe- is phenomenal in that role. Um, you know, it's kind of funny that you have Bodie um, from uh, from Point Break, and that that movie and Speed are both Keanu Reeves uh, films, where they you know he was faced with a probably superior actor um, giving a superior performance. Um, and you know, it's, it's one, it's one of those movies where the reason it works is because Dennis Hopper is such a badass and he just, he has a plan. He's going to, he's going to do it and you have no control. Um, you know, when I'll I'll get to my Anton comments in a second to parrot yours, but you know, it's when, when you don't necessarily know their motivation, but you know that it's a train that's just not going to stop like this is going to happen and there's no way that the protagonist is going to be able to slow them down, that feeling of inevitability is scary and is intense. Um, and for the majority of of that movie, Dennis Hopper is way ahead of them. And Jeff Daniels and Keanu Reeves are just blind, just hoping they come up with something. Um, because the only reason they're even in the game is because he's allowing them to be by you know contacting them. Um, and, uh, so it's, he's play, he's toying with them and playing with them, um, for most of the film. And I think that's, what's exciting about any good action film is when the antagonist is actually in control. Most of the time, um, number 10 is a throwback to one of the first great films ever made. Um, the movie M there is a, uh, there's a, a, man out there, you know, murdering children. So it's like literally the most horrible thing you could ever possibly imagine. So this entire town is just completely freaked because every kid, you know, every parent is completely freaked out that there's this like serial murderer on the loose that's going after kids. And this guy, Hans Beckert is like essentially a pedophile, but in the, but he's a murderer. He's not, he doesn't do anything to the kids. He just kills them. But it's, it's this philosophy that not philosophy, but it's this, this, you know, psychological, malfunction that he has where he sees a kid and his instinct is to kill them you know in the same way that a rapist or a pedophile they see someone and their instinct is to attack them and it's they don't and, and what's what's incredible about the movie is it's one of the most incredible scenes I've ever seen ever filmed where the, once they finally capture him and the whole town wants to basically hang him off you know off a tree or, or you know send him to the guillotine And he's pleading with them. He's like, I don't want to do this. It's something inside my head that's just making me do this. I don't want to do this, but it's literally the most frightening character I've ever seen created that you have this character. And then the fact that they gave him depth by the end of the film. And you're actually sitting there going, maybe we shouldn't kill this guy. And this whole time you're like, this is the literally the number one guy I would want killed um, in, in, you know, for any kind of movie that, like, that's that's his resume. He deserves to die. Like, I think that's one of the funny things, when Ray, when you were talking about uh, being upset that um, Leonardo DiCaprio died first. You know, our morality goes out the window in these kind of movies. Like, we, <laughs> we don't have a, a normal train of thought with films. It's like, oh, okay, this is an action movie. Okay, who's going to die in what order? And, you know, how are they going to die? Okay, that was a cool death. You know, like, that's not how real people think in real life. But in this film, you have maybe the worst possible offender we've ever seen on film and then by the end you're questioning whether or not you know how you should treat treat this guy because they make him human and it's 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 just remarkable so um it was the main reason for putting on the list was really just a shout out the brilliance of the film um number nine i have anton as well um i think the the main thing to kind of go what you were saying it's that illusion of control you know you flip a coin you give that person that sense of, oh, well, I have some, I have, I have a chance to, you know, to have some control of this. And in reality, you don't, because if you flip it and it's and you say heads and it's heads, he can just ask you to flip again. You know, what I mean, he he has the ultimate control, and for whatever reason, he is going on this path, and it's a path you can't stop because he's so cold blooded and he's so unfeeling that he's not going to let reason get in the way. He's not going to let someone plead to, you know, plead away, um, their, their life. Um, and the, and when you have that kind of remorseless, you know, uh, person, it's, it's about as scary as it gets. And Javier Bardem, you, you said it as, as well as anyone could. I mean, his performance is, is flawless in that film. Um, anyone else, maybe that movie doesn't work as well. Um, you know, he, he was, he was perfect. Um, the, uh, haircut was ridiculous, but he was perfect. Um, <laughs> Uh, and then for number eight, um, you know, we, we don't have to get into Kevin Spacey, the person at all, but Kevin Spacey, the actor in 1995 was pretty, was pretty brilliant. Um, one of the best things about Seven that I've heard since the movie came out was that Kevin Spacey said the only way he would do the film is if he wasn't on the, um, you know, the marquee and he wasn't on the the posters because he wanted him being in the film to be a surprise itself that you didn't know. You know, because if it was if it had said Brad Pitt, Morgan Freeman, Kevin Spacey, then you know that it was Kevin Spacey's the killer, the the way that film is set up. So I thought that was that kind of added to me, you know, to the the aura of that character. But the fact that even you know I have John Doe on this list, so does Ray. I don't know if you do, Rudy, but I mean, the the fact that he was on screen for like 10 minutes, you know, was like he was barely in the film, and yet. He absolutely belongs on a list like this because he was just such a menacing character. And to your exact point, when a villain gets away with it at the end, and even though he died, he did exactly what he wanted to do. It happened exactly the way he planned. That, in and of itself, I think adds layers to him being on a list like this because he wins. And when the villain wins, that just changes the whole complexion of the movie. Because if the bad guy loses at the end, no matter what he did or what she did, you, there's still some sense of relief. There's no relief in Seven. You walk away just feeling like empty, and and that's a, a you know a remarkable feat to do in a movie because it doesn't very ha- doesn't happen very often. And then Usual Suspects is just you know such an incredible plot twist, one of the best ever you know performed. Um, you know, it's one of the great reveals of all time and, uh, and his performance as ver- as Verbal Kent and then, um, and then becoming Kaiser Soze was just remarkable. So I had to shout out, uh, you know, Kevin Spacey for that in 1995, cause it was pretty epic. So Ray, what do you got for, uh, four through seven? So at
1: number seven, I've got, uh, Oren Ishii played by Lucy Liu, Kill Bill volume one in 2003. I've got Commodus, played by Joaquin Phoenix in Gladiator on 2000. I've got Nicky Santoro, played by Joe Pesci, Pesci in Casino, 1995. And I've got a Mola, Mola Ram, played by Amrish Puri in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom,
0: 1984.
2: What about you, Rudy? Seven through four.
0: So at number seven, I have Kaiser Sose. <laughs> Uh, Kevin Spacey, The Usual Suspects. I have Nikki Santoro, Joe <laughs> Pesci from Casino. <laughs> I have, uh, at number five, I have Colonel Hans Landa, Christopher Waltz from Inglorious Bastards. And then at number four, I bring the heat. Literally, Neil
2: McCauley, Robert De Niro, heat. So for number seven, I have Mitch Leary from In the Line of Fire. For number six, I have Amy Dunn from Gone Girl. For number five, I have a tie between Nurse Ratchet from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Next and Mr. Perry from Dead Poets Society. And then for number four, I've got Jules Winfield from Pulp Fiction. Break it down for us, Ray. Well, I got
1: Oren Ishii Ishi because I thought that she had, I uh, thought that she was the coolest villain of the Deadly Viper Assassination Squad. She lived the longest and was the most successful of the group. Um, A lot and, of good villains it, in that movie if, too. If you actually go through the the chronological order of how she actually killed them, she gets to Oren much later than she does the other ones. Um, but they but they the way it falls in the timeline is different. She had the coolest backstory of all of the of uh of all of the assassins in that movie. That was the one that was uh, it was all in animation it was all animated by uh, the same artist who did some of the, the short films in the animatrix. Um, it was a really cool art style. And I thought that she was for her to be able to um, work her way up in the Japanese Yakuza as a half, half American, and like which bo- bothered to shit. I have obviously one of the, one of the bosses for her to do that and, and to have command a small army uh, around her and, and 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 become this huge crime lord boss uh, from like lowly from like orphan the assassin to from orphan to assassin to crime boss, I thought it was pretty impressive and I I was really I, I thought the the whole build up to that fight was pretty awesome, because you know uh, the the bride had to get through so many different bosses. You could even I mean Gogo yubari was pretty darn cool too as a villain, uh, but you know she didn't really. She kind of had uh, a—I thought that fight was cool, too, but I really like the dramatic exchange between the bride and Oren Ishii because you know that there's this history that exists there. There's a fondness and a respect for one another during the fight that's that's clearly captured. There's almost uh, remorse from Ishii's side, and and there's almost a little bit of— uh, not hesitancy, but like there's this this kind of faint reluctance from the bride too, because she's killing someone that she used to be very tight with. They, I mean, they were assassins, but they they were tight assassins. These people were close. That's that's indicative that that plays out throughout the film, uh, especially with the female characters, with the exception of of Ellie Driver's character. But there, um, the um, all of the cinematography and the fight sequences there are amazing, and I just think that I just thought that she was an amazing one of the most amazing female villains i'd ever seen and i was not expecting it to to play out the way it did and i thought lucy Lou did a fantastic job who um you know i haven't watched a lot of lucy Lou, you know it's not someone i follow some of the films that she's in like charlie's angels or i know now she does uh the sherlock holmes series i don't follow that stuff But that film, that character stood out to me and left a lasting impression and kind of fell right into, you know, the criteria that I have for action villains. And she's definitely one that sticks out to me. Uh, Commodus, Joaquin Phoenix. This was the first film i had ever seen uh, starring Joaquin Phoenix, even though he had been acting since he was a kid. But uh, I hadn't seen a, a Phoenix since River Phoenix. And now here comes on the scene in this Ridley Scott epic with uh, russell crowe at the height of his powers and walking phoenix just starting the beginning of of his uh of his career into and and, and doing amazing roles and this is a, a extremely i love the the mythology behind these characters and the history behind these characters because they are just evil they he kills his dad early in the film you just know he's a piece of shit just because it's like the 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 thirst for power is so strong it's like blood like means nothing to these people throughout like the the Greek mythology it's like nope nope, doesn't matter i will kill anyone and anybody to get to, to get to the throne and he was he's just so like, weaselly too yeah he's and so he's weaselly. got this weird he's got this weird incestual flirtation that he has with his sister and he, he, he even threatened he like subtly threatens to kill her son his nephew if if she doesn't comply with him in certain times it's just like it's like sick he's like sick in the head and the makeup they do to make him like is it's, it's dark around his eyes and and it's like he's sweating the whole time and and, he, and he, again this is another villain that pisses me off because he he, he poisoned he he, he cheaps the fight he cheapens the fight with the poison dagger and still gets one over on russell Crowe's character and you're rooting for him the whole time it's like damn he's he, even though he's gonna get it by that same blade he still got that jab in before it can end and russell Crowe has to die at the end in this tragedy and you know and these are they're like shake- they're very Shakespearean the way those types of films play out uh, with that mythology, and uh, again it was it was irritating to watch that because it's like man he's like he still gets it and so uh, that's what I loved about that character, uh, Nicky Santoro. I mean this is uh, pretty obvious to me like Nicky Santoro was the toughest son of a bitch in that film. He, Ace Rothstein was just you know his best friend from from childhood. He, you know Robert De Niro took a a back seat in the toughness in this particular film as opposed to you know goodfellas when he was jimmy conway um so i and i thought nicky santoro the the opening scene where he stabs the guy in the pen uh the, the the fact that he's just got this vulgar i'll break you in a second if you cross me and he's not like the sloppy the sloppy hothead that he is in goodfellas he's he's thought he's still a hothead but he's much more intelligent and a bit more a bit more, uh, there's more intent behind that intensity when, when he loses his top, he he's, he's a smart crook and he's a good crook. And that's why they bring him in in the first place because he's so good and he's crazy, but he just doesn't give a shit. And that's what I love about him. He's just like, man, you love every scene that he's in. Cause it's Joe Pesci obviously just brings that, that awesome vulgar crass flair that he always brings to those characters. And I just thought Nicky Santoro was so damn tough in that film. And it was just, uh, again, memorable. And then Mola Mullaram from Indiana Jones, you know, this could he could he could almost border into some other some other categories here, but this film is technically labeled as an action adventure. Uh, There is no fantasy there, although he is kind of he does have some fantasy fanciful kind of elements to his character, but. This uh this goes back to all the way to my childhood when I saw this character I mimicked the heart ripping out thing on Rudy I ri- I mimicked it on our cousins it was it was a torture element that I used on family uh, because it was so ingrained in my memory as far as like the, the, this villain was just he like I was like this guy is crazy he could rip hearts out of people this guy's insane you know how's Indiana Jones going to get out of this one you know first it was Nazis now you got a guy who enslaves children who um you know lives in a world where they eat all kinds of nasty things <laughs> he lives in a, li- lives in a cave has some magic stone You know, practices uh, some kind of crazy voodoo where they sacrifice people, where he takes their heart, dumps them into lava, and then, you know, holds the heart up to his followers. Has some crazy blood potion that transforms people into some kind of, um, you know, devote follower of his. This guy's all kinds of nuttiness, you know. Even though he's not as, you know, he doesn't have some of the darker elements that a lot of these villains on our list have. Like this just had he's had such a historical impression on my memory as far as villains are concerned. When I thought of villains, he was one of the first that I thought of in uh, of my top five, which is why he ended up at number four, just because there's so many things about this character that I just remember like the back of my hand because I seen that film a billion times because I just loved it so much. And I thought it was that was the create to me up to that point. That was the craziest, most like uh, gory thing I had seen um at that time and, Temple and of Doom is course so gory it's yeah, so unnecessarily at, gory yeah. and as we know that was the film that spawned the birth of the PG-13 rating because they had those weird they had these these they crossed these borders i mean you could have easily gone r with him you see the hand going into the guy's chest and pulling out a heart you know it's that's mortal combat territory you know last <laughs> time i checked that's a pretty mature video game so uh yeah but that's uh, i had him there just because uh he was a huge part of of our childhood uh growing up and it's still something that we joke about to this day. Um, and so uh, because because my one of my big criteria elements was ha- was a lasting impression. And Ram certainly has had that on me for to, uh, up to now.
0: It's funny you say that he's definitely the most memorable of the Indiana Jones villains. Like, uh, yeah, uh... that's just Nazis. Yeah, and there's Belloc in Raiders. Yeah, but not alright. And then there's uh, what's what's the other villain from from Raiders with the hat and the glasses? I can't remember his
1: name, but he was cool too. He was a cool villain, but
0: he didn't he didn't really do much. Yeah, know? but he's definitely of all the villains in the movies, he's definitely the nastiest. Is yes. that guy from from Mollerom?
2: the grossest. It's tough too because of how how. Perfect Indiana Jones is as far as a protagonist. So to be to even get close to that level and be on the same level with someone like that, you know. Well, when we get to sci-fi, obviously it's like you know Luke Skywalker is such a young, upcoming character. It's like Darth Vader is a fully established character. It's easy for him to one up Luke, you know. Whereas Obi Wan can kind of be at that level, you know. So when we talk we're talking levels you can go with something like that where it's like it's easy to see the the power that someone like a Darth Vader has when Indiana Jones is like literally this badass then it's hard for a villain to meet you know to meet him at that at you know at his level um which, which and, is- and Molaram ch- ch- turns him he turns him
1: through halfway through the film he makes him drink the the blood and he becomes a servant and it wasn't it
0: it, it took the it took what short round had to bail him out of that Yeah. had to burn him <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, Tot. Uh, T-O-H-T. That was the name of the villain from Raiders of the Lost Ark. The, the one who, who burned his hand grabbing the... Ah, uh, yeah, the, yeah. ...the idol so he, that they used for as a map.
2: So, Rudy, what about yours?
0: All right. So, uh, going back here, number seven. Uh, yeah, you know what? I'm, I'm going to speak on this very briefly. You know, obviously, given all of the... Uh, all of the uh, controversy surrounding Kevin Spacey, the person... It was tough to include him anywhere on this list, but I decided I decided I was going to choose between seven or usual suspects. I wouldn't give them both. And so that's why I went with Kaiser Soze because he's in the entire film. And uh, I mean, it's just, man, talk about a doozy. But you guys have all brought up really good points, so I don't want to really belabor the point. But uh, it's just a really, really great performance as Verbal Kent into Kaiser. And what, what I thought was... For me, what was most interesting is I sat the whole film assuming he was Kaiser Soze. I was like, he's got to be Kaiser Soze. He's the only guy left. Like, logically, this is the dude. But even in the very end, when he blames it uh, on—it was Gabriel Byrne, right? Is that who's playing the—yeah. He blames it on Gabriel Byrne at the end of the movie— and, and in that moment, I was like, oh, it's Gabriel Byrne. I totally believed him. I totally believed him. And then when he walked out, I was like, son of a bitch. And it was just the fact that he got me for that last like five minutes was, it was so compelling to me. Because the whole movie, I was like, he's got to be Kaiser Sose. It's obvious. He's the last guy alive. It must be the guy. But he was so good in his performance that even at the very end, even when I believed him to be him the whole time, He convinced me that it was Gabriel Byrne. He still fooled me at the end of it. And I was very, I thought it was a, it was still a really good performance. Performance alone, you know, I mean, I, I think Kevin Spacey, it's not surprising me that he ends up on anyone's list because, you know, he has played some uh, excellent villains on, in, um, on screen. Very good at villains. Uh, number six, Nikki Santoro, Joe Pesci, Casino. Raymond, kind of like you were saying, there's a, there is a much more calculated, uh, uh, approach to the villain in casino, you know in goodfellas. He's he's kind of just a bruiser and in casino and in casino You see that he's really kind of working everybody and he's highly manipulative and he takes advantage of a lot of situations And I think similar to Kevin Spacey you could you could have gone here and you could have gone a tie between casino and goodfellas with Joe Pesci and it would have been it would have been totally fine Um but for for this particular list, because I'd already done Travolta and Cage, I was trying to go, okay, i'm gonna I'm gonna force myself to choose one guy because I realized when going through these lists, we we could have probably done a top eleven on just Robert de Niro villains. That's how many times he's been a villain, you know, like yeah. we probably could have literally done that. So I was going, okay, what's if I can only take one of these guys to the party, who am I gonna take? and Nikki Santoro from Casino, I, actually grew up watching Casino way more than Goodfellas, even though Goodfellas came out first. Um, I don't know why. I don't know how that worked out that way. Pretty sure I I saw
1: Casino before Goodfellas as well.
0: I'm pretty sure I saw Casino before Goodfellas too. I love both movies, and um, I love them both. The thing that I think is really fun is that Goodfellas – if you look at Scorsese, Goodfellas is kind of his Godfather one, and The Casino is Godfather two. Well, let, let me take kind of the same concept, but let's expand it. Let's make it bigger. Let's make it more extravagant. Let's really play around with 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 what we were kind of we were only experimenting with in Goodfellas, and I feel like Casino has that feel. It's bigger. It's broader. It's kind of bolder, and um, he really kind of took the template from Goodfellas and just kind of blew it out. And uh, like I kind of feel like uh, he was showing off a little bit in a good way, and I think that uh, I think this Nicky Santoro character for Joe Pesci, I like him even more than um, than who uh, what's his name in Goodfellas? I can't believe I'm running a blank on him. He's it. like look- Tommy Tommy something. Yeah, yeah, in Goodfellas, and Tommy Tommy, number- right? Yeah, yeah, Tommy right? Yeah, Tommy DeVito. Right? That's it, Tommy DeVito. At number five, uh, Colonel Hans Landa, Christopher Waltz and in Inglorious Bastards. I found this character to be absolutely so unsettling. And I think you know looking looking into the 2010s to 2020, there wasn't really anybody that stood out. This is the this is the this is uh aside from an honorable mention this this is the the fur the closest in in action villains that I put on here. He is just so unsettling. He's so disturbing. His charm is he has this false charm that he is only delivering to intimidate you and manipulate you and interrogate you. And, but, the, but he's doing it with a smile the whole time. And, and even even going down to that opening scene where he pulls out that pipe and his pipe is 10 times bigger than the father's pipe. And it's just everything with him is a game. And he's thought of every single aspect of what he's going to do. And it's always an interrogation. Everyone's a suspect and everybody everybody's an enemy. And he's so so dangerous, and I just I think this performance is absolutely brilliant, and and is uh, probably the best action villain of the last twenty years for me. And then at number four, uh, Neil McCauley Robert De Niro from Heat. As I mentioned before, you could do a top eleven of just Robert De Niro. The uh, man, I you, you could you could have put so many different guys here. The thing I like about Heat. He's it's it's who he is also in juxtaposition to everyone else in this movie. You got Al Pacino, Michael Mann as director. This this movie has influenced so many films. And the thing I like about him here, there's two, my two favorite villains. My number one favorite villain of all time is the villain who thinks he's a good guy. Magneto is uh is like he's my all time favorite comic book villain is Magneto. I think he's the most interesting villain because he thinks he's the good guy. And he thinks that humans are the bad guys. And then the other type of villain I like a lot, which is Robert De Niro's, is, is the guy trying to get out. The guy who's like who is who is done. He's he's just trying he's just one last rodeo and he's gotta get out. And he brings such a deep layer to Robert to, to this character, you're rooting for him. Even though he's the bad guy, Al Pacino is the good guy. Al Pacino and Al Pacino's a good, you know, he's not perfect either, but he's the good guy, you know. But you're still, you want, you want De Niro to get away. You do want him to get away with this, but he's a bad man and he does terrible, awful things. And he is, he, you, 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 you find yourself rooting for him wanting to get out, but agreeing that he's a bad man that probably should go down. And he's so torn and that final moment. When he looks over at his girl, and and it's like it's like her or or run, and he just goes and he he chooses because he's like, hey man, this is the only way out. And when he's sitting there in that final moment uh, outside by the by the planes, by I don't know where. Where do you think he's at? Is he at LAX? Is he at? I think so. be LAX, right? Yeah. Maybe they shot it at Burbank. I'm not sure, but uh, uh, but it's he just brings so much nuance and so many layers. To that character, it it, it it was it was tough. There's so many great Robert De Niro villains, but uh, I I just wanted to go with Heat because it's probably his most vulnerable. I would say the second would maybe be his character from Casino as being very vulnerable. But he there was a vulnerability to him coupled with uh, a very intense level of violence and and at just a hair trigger. No no questions asked. He 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 will drop you as quick as he has to. And, uh, he ends up his whole rules where he talks about how, you know, never, you know, never, never keep anything. that They're not willing to completely walk away from in a second, but it's, it's that breaking of that rule is what really does him in, in the end. And it just a very nuanced character. And, uh, yeah,
1: he, he like, he like breaks it and then goes back to it at, 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 in the same time too. Like he goes back to get the girl, but then when he, when they're at the hospital, because he decides to go and get revenge, um and then he comes back out to join her then it's like you that that phrase is playing in my head when you watch that scene even though he doesn't say anything but he's looking at her and you can just hear that phrase that he has with al pacino in the coffee shop you know if you're not ready to walk away in 60 seconds when you spot the heat but he's like that's like that's what's going on in his head right now and he's there's even some apprehension in his facial expression but he knows he has to do that now because he's he's gone too far <laughs>
2: well and that's that's every you know everyone that's learn f- how to write from Shakespeare. It's you have to give your characters a fatal flaw and then they have to go down with the sword because of that fatal flaw and his, his, his rules were broken. And when you break your rules, that's it. You know, it's, it's the famous, uh, you know, Omar from the wire. You man, a man has to have a code. And when you don't, when you break your code, whatever that code is, I mean, that's, I think the essence of this podcast and our future podcast on villains is that they all have a code, and the ones that live by it the most consistently are usually the most interesting because their consistency is actually in, ends up looking impressive and and with these characters they're still gonna fall most times because they uh, because that code is a flawed code it's not the way you should live and when you live wrong, eventually you get got right so um you know his his code allowed him to get Away with a lot of things he shouldn't have done, like rob banks and different things. But that code also was flawed from the start. And then when he was inconsistent with it, it was the, you know it was asking to get caught. Yeah,
0: and Raymond, going back to your thing about talking about how much you hated guys, uh, Christopher, Waltz, Christopher Waltz in *Inglorious Bastards* is probably the guy I hated the most <laughs> on this list. I hated his guts i just wanted someone to blow his brains out the entire movie <laughs> god i hated him but when so they much. get under and when they get under
2: <laughs> your skin like that it's you, it's to you go back to what ray had said at the start it's you know when they leave an impression and the, and the yeah. impression doesn't have to be a fun one it, it can be a completely frustrating one and that's exactly why they make a list
0: 100 percent, i completely agree with you
2: all right Kennelstick will your turn buddy so for number seven i had mitch leary from in the line of fire um you know john you you were mentioning how um you loved, uh, um, you know, the performances in Professional because uh, just of the actor himself. John Malkovich is such an amazing actor. And uh, to me, when when you have an amazing actor completely 100% buy in to being the villain, it can be pretty ex- extraordinary. And, and Malkovich is obviously a really, you know, uh, incredible character. Um, w- one of the most enjoyable podcasts I've ever listened to is is uh, the Rewatchables That the Ringer does, and when they did Con Air, that was kind of one of the things they talked about was that you know you have this accomplished actor in John Malkovich completely buying into the bad character that he's playing. It makes it work. He was great in that movie.
1: I don't I don't like Con Air very much, but I do I think he's John Malkovich is excellent as Virus Cyrus the Virus.
2: (laughs) Well, and and so you have this ridiculous premise with a bunch of top flight actors, really. And it makes that ridiculous premise enjoyable and entertaining, even if it's ridiculous or even if it's w- way too over the top. Um, but then to go to a movie like In the Line of Fire, he's so damn evil in that movie, and he's so calculated in what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. And again, similar to um, some other you know, other people we've had on these lists, you know, the only reason that John Doe gets caught is because he walks into the police station. The only reason Mitch Leary got caught is because he kept insisting on calling Clint Eastwood throughout the film and keeping him in the game because he wanted to play a game. You know. And it's like, th- that's to me sometimes the most diabolical, most uh, incredible villains are the ones that they're so damn good that they, they actually have to use their ego and their arrogance and, and their intelligence is actually what ends up doing them in. Because they're keeping you in the game, as you know, is one of the things he he kept he kept saying in that film. Um, number six, I have Amy Dunn from Gone Girl, might be one of the most incredible characters I've ever seen on film, especially recently. Um, it's such a powerful role. Rosamund Pike is just incredible. Is just maybe the most evil woman ever filmed. Um, you know, the, another David Fincher. I mean, he's he knows how to make just sickening characters. Interesting. Love David Fincher. And, um, and and that movie is, you know, insanely underrated, I think. Um It's just an absolutely incredible film. And her role is just, it's, it's one, again, I've used this word already in this podcast once, but it, I, I think her role is just completely flawless. I mean, I think, she, that was the best performance I saw from a female actress that year, period. And then from a villain standpoint, I, she was as, as strong a villain as I've ever seen. Um, you know, uh, one of our favorites, Shea Serrano from, from The Ringer, had a villains podcast, and he did a whole episode dedicated to Amy Dunn. And I already was in – I was already on board with, you know – uh, with that character before that show, and then when you listen to it, you're like, "Yep, she's absolutely one of the one of the worst there's ever been." Um, so she had to make my list. Um, at number five, I have uh, Nurse Ratchet from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and then uh, Mr. Perry from Dead Poets Society, who is essentially the Nurse Ratchet in Dead Poets Society. And one of the most interesting things I ever found out, you know, later in life was that. Dead Poet Society is one flew over the cuckoo's nest. It's basically the exact same film. The way that the, the way the kids are in that movie is the way the prisoners are, or the prisoners, the um, the uh, patients are in the mental hospital. Um, you know, Robin Williams and Jack Nicholson are the same character, um, and uh, and so Mr., and Mr. Perry is Nurse Ratchet. He's the one that's not letting you know, not letting Neil be free and not letting him be you know be the you know be the one that he wants to be and uh and chief and the and ethan hawk are the same character who'd never speak up and never say anything until the very very end so even just the realization that those two those two films are the same those two books are the same was incredible to me but it made me realize just why i hated mr perry so much because that might be the worst father in movie history like he was just such a horrible human being and the way he treated his son was like, oh my god! And then when he and then when he kills himself, and he blames the teacher, it's like, fuck you! Like that was, it was, like, <laughs> it, and, and, and then the fact that he had this that you know Robin Williams has to sit on the knife that Jack Nicholson you know is, dies basically, um, you know goes into a coma in that film. It's like, it's this it's the same thing, right? And so it's that same unbelievable frustration that this guy was trying to bring life into these people's lives, you know, gets destroyed. Um, and so that character is one of the most diabolical characters in, in movie history. Um, and then for number four, absolute all timer, you know, Samuel Jackson is Jules Winfield in Pulp Fiction. Um, one of the most quotable scenes of all time, one of the most just evil, vicious, just cold blooded, badass motherfucker scenes you've ever seen in film history when he's in that apartment and he's giving that speech. And he's just, I mean, kills a dude without even talking to him. And then it's like, what, did I break your concentration? I mean, every line in that scene, that, I mean, that movie, he's great in that movie. That scene by itself puts him on my list. That is one of the most incredible villain scenes I've ever seen. And Samuel Jackson was perfectly cast in that part. That was absolutely where he was supposed to be in his career in that moment and he hit he hit that out of the park um with a, a 600 foot bomb over over everything um and it's just it's one of the most and it's it's one of the most memorable performances of all time so what do you
1: got Ray for any uh, honorable mention yes actually my honorable mention list is almost as long as my actual list <laughs> just because there's so many guys uh this is in no particular order but I've got uh, Buffalo Bill, aka Jamie Gum, uh, played by Ted Levine in Silence of the Lambs, 1991. I've got Patrick Swayze as Bodie in Point Break, 1991. He was actually on my list, but I pulled him off because I thought some other guys uh, belong there, although that is a really cool villain. I've got Chong Lee, uh, played by Bolo Young from Bloodsport in 1988. I've got Cohagen, played by Ronnie Cox, Total Recall, 1990, the guy that won't give people air. <laughs> you
0: don't consider that's a sci-fi movie. Uh, he he might show up on a different list. for He's me. in a
1: sci-fi film, but he's not he's not that kind of villain to me. I guess he could fall. I mean, it's Total Recall's a science fiction film. Um, I've got Brick Top played by Alan Ford in Snatch Ooh, 2001. I love he that some one. Amazing lines in that film. I've got Ellie Driver played by Daryl Hannock, Hillbill Volume One and Two. I've got Neil McCauley played by Robert De Niro in Heat 1995. One of my favorite films of all time. I've got The Butcher, played by Daniel Day-Lewis, Gangs of New York, 2002. I've yes. also got Wayne Grove, played by Kevin Gage in Heat, 1995. I thought he was an equally impressionable villain in that film. He's the one that kind of screws up that whole thing for, for all of those guys. And then I've got Anton
0: uh, Chigurh, played by Javier Bardem in No Country for Old Men, 2007.
2: All right, all right, Rudy, what about you?
0: All right, so at number five, Howard Payne, played by Dennis Hopper for Speed. Yes. At number four, Vincent, played by Tom Cruise in Collateral. At number three, The Butcher, Daniel Day-Lewis, Gangs of New York. At number two, Stansfield, Gary Oldman, The Professional. And at number one, Johnny, William Zabka, Karate Kid, and Cobra Kai. My number (laughs) one. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. John Creese was on my list, but
1: I pulled him off. I pulled John off. He,
0: he is like just the when you were a little kid, he was the villain. You you wanted yeah, to be him and you wanted worst. to fight him at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> he was like he was oh, the kid man. villain. When you were a little kid, he was your kid villain because you're like you 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 knew you knew every, there was a Johnny in every school. There was a Johnny in every one of your classes, and you were like you, there was always that Johnny. And uh, yeah, he it's not it's not even so much his performance, but it was just I think he's like what he represents for all children. Uh, raised in the 80s it's funny
1: too because he's kind of the focal point in the karate kid series that's on
0: youtube yeah cobra kai the story really revolves around him yeah cobra kai Mm -hmm. yeah
2: those are those are those are my five He, he actually had a more impressive arc in that film than than ralph macchio did being able to come over afterwards and give him the trophy and and say he was sorry like that he actually had more of an impressive arc in that film you know, realizing it. his uh, coach was an asshole. Yep. What about for you? Um, so I have some shouts out. Um, I love your guys' uh, n- nominations, by the way. Those were the honorable mention lists are badass, and I have a lot of the same ones. Um, Baby Jane Hudson from Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Uh, Betty Davis is an all-timer for, for villains. Um, Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life. That guy was evil as hell. Um Oh. The, uh, oh. I don't know. I mean, I, I, this is one of uh, Spielberg's first ever films It was actually a TV movie, but the tr- the truck from Duel was just mm-hmm. absolutely oh, yes. just um, just incredible. Uh, Alex Forrest from Fatal Attraction, um, w- one of the most uh, evil women of all time. Uh, shout out to shout out one. to Nino Brown from New York from New Jack City. Um, I, al- yes. I also had That's I also had one. Chong Lee from Bloodsport. Um yeah. shout out to another great Daniel Day-Lewis uh villain and Daniel Plainview from There Will Be Blood. Um uh I absolutely had Brick Top from Snatch, one of my favorite films ever. Um I could watch that film every day. Um also Bullet Tooth Tony is a complete badass in that film, so I have to include him. My favorite character ever in the history of film is Bill the Butcher from Gangs of New York. Um so he he's not as evil as some of these other people that we have on our list, but that's like my favorite, one of my favorite films ever. And, and down to Lewis performance is that's, it's just so perfect. Um, so I had to shout him out. Um, I'm also going to shout out little dice from city of God. One of the best, best films I've ever seen. And that, that dude was just, he was just relentlessly evil. And then uh last shout out is Mr. Blue from taking of Pelham one, two, three from the 1970, the 1974 version. Um, we uh, everyone uh, obviously knows uh, what a great actor Robert Shaw is from uh, movies like Jaws and The Sting, but he was just absolutely cutthroat in Taking of Pelham One Two Three. It was a r- really great film if people haven't seen it. Obviously, Travolta and Denzel did a remake um, more recently, but that 1974 film was really really good, and, and he's great in it. All right, so here we go. Yeah, I mean we we, we
1: could do another podcast with just the honorable mentions.
2: <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean we we hit some we hit some nice ones there too, especially some 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 favorite yeah. films, especially. So what do you got, Ray? What's your top 3?
1: Okay, so I've uh, this might be obvious to to you guys, uh, especially number 1. But at number 3, I've got Alonzo played by Denzel Washington in Training Day 2001. I've got Dr. Hannibal Lecter, played by Anthony Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs. Also, uh, that was 1991. And at number one, I've got the very obvious Hans Gruber, played by the late, great Alan Rickman in Die Hard 1987, which is my personal all-time favorite action film.
2: All right, Rudy, what about you?
0: Well, I might have the same exact list in a completely different order. (laughs) (laughs) At number three, Hans Gruber, played by Alan Rickman, <laughs> Die Hard, 1987. At number two, Alonzo, played by Denzel Washington, <laughs> Training Day. And at number one, Dr. Hannibal Lecter, Anthony Hopkins, Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal, and Red Dragon. Which That's insane. I don't know if we've ever had that before. No. Uh, the, the exact same top three, but just all flipped around. We had no disc- We had we had talks
1: about how it was difficult to come up with the the latter half of my list, but we didn't give any indication as to, uh, you know, what the three would be. Yeah,
2: that was good. All right, your turn, Will. So I'll start this off by I love Denzel Washington. He, I've seen every film he's ever made. Um, he's not on my list. I lo- I do love Training Day, but he didn't make my list. Um, but number three, Hans Gruber from Die Hard. <laughs> yes, a tie. No, yeah. Number 2, Hannibal Lecter from Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> yeah. And oh, number 1, Michael Corleone from Godfather Part 2.
0: Man, we were close. We were so close. <laughs> All
2: right, so Ray, why did you pick the same ones we picked? <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh
1: Alonso, uh was just the the coolest. The coolest uh crooked cop in training day you you were more captivated by alonzo than you were ethan hawk although ethan hawk is a great actor and he's a great character in that film but but you you're just all about alonzo in this film you're he he has all the best lines he delivers all the best lines he's the one he creates all of the intrigue around what's happening with the cops why they're doing what they're doing you're you're totally there's times Those ethics. But then at the same time, he comes back with this convincing argument to justify those bent ethics that he just displayed in front of you to make you think, okay, maybe he isn't so bad. Maybe, you know, I I guess that's a good reason for him to steal that money. And so (laughs) so you're you're constantly kind of thrown back and forth, back and forth. Is he a bad guy or is he a good guy? He's a cop that just kind of bends the rules. But but all these other cops seem to follow him and respect him a lot, too. So I guess he's I guess he's on the up and up. And then it, it isn't until the very end that you, that at least for me and my uh, decision to, to the third act, when I finally figured out, OK, this guy's just a, a straight up crooked ass cop. Um, but but up to that point, up to the third act, I was on board with him. Just I was like, all right, you got to be a cop. You just got to get some dirt on you. That's all this is, Ethan Hawk. You got to buck up and stop being a little pansy and start to, <laughs> you know, start to to embrace the, the, the new cop detective life that you so badly wanted to uh, uh, be a part of and uh, and so but but Alonzo uh, eventually flips the table, and you know, I almost kind of didn't want to see him die, but at the same time, you're just like, hey, he kind of goes I mean uh, Denzel Washington was a good guy up to this point, and every film I had seen him in up to I don't think he's played a bad guy um, up to the, uh, that film. I could be wrong, but at least every film I saw. Uh, denzel washington play he was always the good guy so i was i was completely that was a twist within a twist of itself just as far as, as my perception of denzel washington as an actor and what how he usually what characters he usually portrays so i thought that was a, an awesome uh role for him to take and not not his usual route uh, definitely out of what his, what is clearly his comfort zone is to be the good guy that's what he's always been cast as so i thought that was awesome uh, anthony hopkins what more can you say about anthony hopkins the actor but also more so Dr. Hannibal Lecter, who is even more menacing and scary than Buffalo Bill, the killer they're actually trying to pursue. And they're trying to get information from a a killer who's already captured. But you're more scared of him behind that plate glass than you are of Buffalo Bill. Even though Buffalo Bill is really scary, Ted Levine does a terrific job. Ted Levine was also in Heat. He was one of the cops in Heat, too, by the way. But uh, he also, I mean, Hannibal Lecter just steals the show. He steals it from Jodie Foster. He steals it from Ted Levine. you like the and 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 eventually, you know, it it's he he eventually becomes the main villain of that film at the very end, um, you know, w- w- when he escapes. And and I thought that that was just a, a brilliant. Just a, a brilliant pacing in that film, a, a brilliant build-up to what that film is, and, and the character. Just And even in the other films, even though I don't like the other films as much as I enjoyed uh, Silence of the Lambs, even though they, they've got some great moments in them too, you get to see a little bit of some slightly different shades of hannibal lecter where he's 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 kind of less he's he's being that less like there's there's less conversations of him showing his intelligence and kind of him doing these weird sort of riddles to 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 jodie foster's character and it's just more him kind of you just see him in action and seeing all the crazy things that he can do to people because he's got this he's just insanely insanely intelligent but also insanely insane (laughs) right (laughs) so but uh, but um but uh, H- Lecter is just uh, that's just I can watch that character whenever that film's on. I'll turn it on no matter what point it is in the film, just because I'm like, oh, I can't wait to get to to the Hannibal Lecter scenes because the, those are my favorite scenes in the film. And then Hans Gruber. Um, Alan Rickman is one of my favorite actors of all time. he I put him right up there with Gary Oldman um, and, and Hans Gruber. Just, I, th- I thought this was just to me. Die Hard is one of the greatest action films of all time because it was like to me. I saw John McClane, Bruce Willis as just a normal ass dude. He wasn't an Arnold Schwarzenegger. He wasn't a Sylvester Stallone. He wasn't super ripped. He was just a normal guy uh, from from L.A. that was in New York, or was it the was it no, the reverse? from from New York and L.A. He's from New York in L.A. That's right. And he was up against Alan Rickman, who's just intelligent, this extremely intelligent guy, very witty, very funny. He's very funny in that film. Um, Alan Rickman, I, I I I actually enjoy every character he's ever played, uh, whether it was Harry Potter or Hans Gruber or even in Love Actually, uh, the, the, the cheating husband in, in Love Actually. I thought he was funny in that film, too. But But Hans Gruber is just I enjoy the Hans Gruber scenes more than I do. Well, I would say it's a two way tie because because Bruce Willis does a terrific job with all the John McClane scenes. There's some awesome scenes there. But at the same time, uh, Hans Gruber steals every scene that he's in, even when he comes face to face with John McClane. And he tries to trick him by flipping his accent a little bit. Um, It's just amazing. Uh, But I'm going to stop there because I don't want to take away all of the all of the cool uh, the cool memories of, of my Hans Gruber experiences since we have all got Hans Gruber on our list. But, but yeah, I had to put Hans Gruber at number one. When, when we first thought of this list, uh, you know, he's the first guy that came to my head. Yeah,
2: absolutely. What about you, Rudy?
0: So I have him at three. He was the first guy that came to my head, too. Um, all three of these guys kind of representing different eras, 80s, 90s, and then the double O's. The and uh, the reason I put Gruber at number three, um, A, I, I easily, I think I, he could have been at one and it would have been fine too. I do think he's edged out just performance-wise slightly by the other two guys. But the thing about Hans Gruber, Raymond, to kind of yes, Andy, what you said, Bruce Willis is a completely normal guy. And Hans Gruber kind of looks like a completely normal guy too. Looks like a Wall Street businessman. <laughs> yeah. Like, and he comes, and he, you know, again, I, I we talked about this before, another guy who, who plays real Weasley, He's a real Weasley character. You know when he appears uh, um, in front of Bruce Willis and John McClane in Die Hard, and but the thing about him is that he's so understated. He could have been any one of those employees. He could have been anybody in that in that building. And similar to Bruce Willis, this movie, and I think it's one of the reasons that what what makes this movie so uh, so enticing from a visual perspective is that. These guys. uh, What's his name down at the bottom? uh, Oh, my God. I can't be running a a, a blank on his name. Uh, What's the cop Oh, yeah. um, No,
1: no, the the cop uh, Reginald Johnson.
0: uh, Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Everyone in this movie, the casting, they all look like normal people. And, you know, if if you look at Schwarzenegger movies, Jean-Claude Van Damme movies, you look at Sylvester Stallone movies half the time, nobody looks normal. I mean, these guys, they're <laughs> huge. The girls are super hot. You know, like everyone looks like a model or a bodybuilder, you know? And then and then Die Hard really flips the convention and, and the casting is actually a much more modern approach to casting where it's like, every one of these people looks like normal people. And the thing about Hans Gruber is aside from him being so menacing, is he does, he looks completely normal and he's the perfect mirror image to Bruce Willis' John McClane. And I think that's what makes it really work and why he's so appealing. And you see so many different shades of him and the way he's kind of able to put on so many different faces to... Uh So that he can adapt to whatever situation he's in and win in whatever situation Mm -hmm. he's in, and he's got the same—he's got the same sarcasm as John McClane does, only as the villain. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, he's just as sarcastic, he's just (laughs) as snarky and rude, and and, a little cynical about everything. He—he really is a mirror image of John McClane, and it was just—it's excellent casting, excellent acting, and excellent writing. I mean, the writing in that movie's insane; it's ridiculous. Number two, Alonzo, Denzel Washington. Uh, I think. I think what edges Hans Gruber out just a little bit and why I went with these final two guys is they both have one thing in common here is extreme, extreme high levels of intensity. The energy coming off of, of Alonso, and he's the exact opposite of Lecter, right? Lecter never moves. Lecter's very still. But the eyes the eyes he's giving you, the look that Lecter gives you is so terrifying. And Alonso, it's the same thing, but it's different. It's that emotional, he's a, he's a, he's a bull in a china shop. The whole time. And you always feel like he's going to snap. And you're right. It's like he, he he almost wins you over for most of the movie. But then he just keeps going a step too far. A step too far until it finally just boils over. And he just goes to the point of no return. Um, but I loved the performance of this. I love this is probably, in my opinion, outside of maybe x uh, this is maybe my favorite Denzel Washington performance ever. I think Malcolm X is probably my all-time favorite Denzel Washington performance, but Alonzo in Training Day—it's uh, probably number two. Um, that, and then maybe Fences at number three. But Fences is my all-time stage, my favorite stage character of all time ever. But that's a conversation for another day. But um. Alonzo in Training Day, just the intensity. He comes at you with the batting room, and you believe every word coming out of Denzel Washington's performance. That is the hallmark of a great actor, is you believe him, and despite how terrible they are, there's a charm to him. The one thing the one thing you learn when you're an actor, and one of the things you have to learn as you're building uh, your base as a performer, is that you that you learn that 98% of all characters are very charming. There's very few characters, no matter how awful they are. I would say one of the big exceptions is probably Buffalo Bill from from Silence of the Lambs*. Uh, the, the, is that he's one of the few characters, and he's a character that you you'll often hear be brought up in in um, acting classes. That there there is a charm to virtually every character that's ever been invented, even the ugliest, worst ones. And 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 the 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 best and hardest thing to do as a performer is to still engage and make people want to go down this journey with you even when they hate your guts, you know, and they think you're the worst person ever. And uh, I think Denzel's ability to convince you that he's right, even though when he is just a complete... He's just an evil, evil fuck who has just allowed his superiority and this position to just take him to places to us uh, uh, to these delusions of grandeur that um, have completely corrupted him as a person. But you he convinces you as an audience member that he might be right. And uh, and and still, even as he's going further and further and further, you kind of just want him to pull back. But you're still you still kind of see want to see what he's going to do. And it's, uh, I think that the if I was going to go performance versus performance, and it was kind of the thing. It was like, I think I like Die Hard overall as a movie. I think the overall structure of the movie and in totality, I like it more than Training Day. But if I'm just going performance versus performance, Alonzo edges out and so, and so Hans Gruber by just a couple hairs there. And then uh, Hannibal Lecter at number one, I think he's probably... The greatest action villain of all time. Uh, you know, I think uh, wow. I, I, w- I don't dis I don't disagree with any of your guys' lists on who your final three are, but Anthony Hopkins in this performance. Uh, these were the two guys that popped into my head: Hans Gruber and Hannibal Lecter. I'm like, well, these are the two guys by which all all action villains are judged upon. You know, these are probably the two biggest guys, and I think Hannibal Lecter's performance as this character. He is he's in the movie for a total of 15 minutes. He's only he's he only is in the movie for 15 minutes. That's all he's in the movie for. And it's spread out across this two hour film. He barely moves. He's smiling most of the time. And he he only and even when he attacks, you see one bite, and then you see him hitting off hitting off camera. But that's really about it. When you compare him to to how much screen time Gruber gets, how much screen time Alonzo gets, how much screen time all these guys get, compared to what Hannibal Lecter, what what Anthony Hopkins is able to do with 15 minutes, smiling and barely moving, and it is is in my opinion thoroughly the most in the most horrifying. And a uh, horrifying character that isn't from a horror film, you know. And some people have labeled *Science of the Lambs* as a horror movie. Uh, I don't agree. I think it's a, a suspense thriller with horror elements. But I, I also don't believe that *Die Hard's a Christmas movie, you know. So uh, <laughs> how uh, dare uh, you? you. Know, I don't. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't think *Hannibal*. I don't think uh, uh, *Science of the Lambs* is a horror film, but it is definitely, definitely a really intense thriller. And he. If you really think about it, when you when you compare these others, and you go, this this is a character we're still talking about thirty years later, and he existed in that first film, and 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 you know, I would say seventy five percent of the people that have have watched watched Anthony Hopkins play Hannibal Lecter, they saw him in Signs of the Lambs, and and they maybe saw Hannibal. It didn't seem like anybody saw Red Dragon, but the fact that he was able to create such a memorable performance out of 15 minutes that so 30 years later we're still talking about 15 minutes of film and 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 he's in all of our top threes as as one of the three greatest villains of all time 15 minutes that was all 15 minutes barely moving and smiling most of the time that is fucking crazy to me that is like that to me he's a master class in performance acting and uh i have to give it to him but but you know, if we do this this next week, I might have you exactly the same as you, Ray. Maybe Alonzo, Lecter, Gruber, all these guys. I, you know, even Michael Corleone. You you can't argue with any of these guys' performances because this is a uh, this these this is definitely you're looking at uh, some Hall of Famers here. So, uh, Candlestick, will let's go to your list. Let's talk about your your same guys as us.
2: Well, you know, I, I think the fascinating thing. I mean, we talked. You, you just you just brought up how little screen time. Hannibal Lecter has in Silence of the Lambs I mean he basically is is, it might be the shortest stint ever for a best actor um you know he should have won best supporting actor by definition of his screen time but he was so damn good he won best actor I mean I think that's that's the definition of you know of being an incredible performance um when it if there were rules that they had to follow, he could, wouldn't even have been eligible for Best Actor um, because of the lack of screen time. Um, the, the other thing we haven't mentioned yet, though, Hans Gruber's character Alan Rickman—that was his very first movie. Yes. Which it, it, it yes. wasn't his first like acting. It wasn't his first yeah. acting performance. Obviously, he was on stage and he was a very accomplished a, a stage actor, which is why they f- they saw him, thought, "Oh, that that would be a great car- you know great person for this role." But the fact that you have a, I mean die hard is forever underrated because so many films for the rest of time will base their plot around what die hard did that they want to have a normal protagonist be in the action film they want to have an intelligent you know antagonist go head to head with them and add humor add action, add suspense and do all the things that all good films do and do it all together and put everyone in a life or death situation where it's, you know, one versus one, even though they both might have teams of people, it's really just one versus one. Right. And, you know, FBI is over here and his, his, his crew's over here. It's really just who's going to win between John McClane and Hans Gruber. And ever since that film, people are trying to write the next John McClane and the next Hans Gruber in their film. Um, and so to me, the, the template that diehard created um, is what makes that such an underrated film. Um, and, you know, when we first talked about this category, you know, I think we all kind of looked at it. Well, Hans Gruber's gotta be number one. Right. And then as I started making my list, I was like, well, if Hannibal Lecter is going to be in this genre, Hannibal Lecter is in, Credible. It's hard for me to justify just because how much I love Hans Gruber, putting Hans Gruber above Hannibal Lecter, and then for the same rationale, once I decided God Godfather was gonna make my list, Michael Corleone has his brother killed. Like Michael Corleone is the most is the most ruthless character in the history of film by definition of who he kills and why and how relentlessly he kills them. And to me, when you start looking at the film, I mean, there, it's, it's an interesting top three for me because you have a guy in his first ever role and it's, a, it's like an action comedy. Then you have this borderline horror, you know, crime, drama, suspense thriller film where he's in for like 10 minutes. And then you have Godfather 2, which is Al Pacino, one of the greatest actors that ever lived, playing the role for the second film. And the first film, he it's one of the most incredible performances ever. So it's a really crazy, you know, collection because, you know, especially the difference between by the time uh, Fredo's killed in Godfather 2, we've seen Al Pacino for like six hours. And whereas right next to him on my list is Hannibal Lecter, who we saw for 15 minutes, right? So it, it, that in and of itself is pretty crazy. But for Michael Corleone to go from I don't want this life to – I'm going to avenge my father and avenge our family by just murdering everybody and just being the most relentless, ruthless motherfucker in the history of time. But the fact that once he saw that his brother, you know, had betrayed him, it was like, well, then you got to die. It's like, it, that doesn't get more cold blooded. Like, I don't think it's possible to be more cold blooded than that because that's literally, that's it's like literally cold blooded. That's your blood. <laughs> And yeah. you are that just diabolically cold to your own brother. And you can kind of sort of justify it because it's, he, you know, he betrayed him, but it's your fucking brother. Like it's just, it's, it's just the most crazy sequence in film history. In, in some, in some ways, because of that, because there's other people that have done horrible things in film, but for Michael Corleone, who's this college boy, you know, war hero was going to be, you know, a Senator. To become this ruthless, you know, head of the family that's going to kill his own brother, it's just it's it's the most incredible arc we've ever seen in film, and um, and I think if you really think about like how ruthless he is, the fact that Kay has an abortion and lies about it and doesn't tell Michael because it was like the only way to get to him, it's like that kind of shows you the level of his evil. <laughs> Was like like that was the only way to hurt him, and you know it was like so if you you know when you really start to break down that film, I mean, um, you know the, the I always bring up The Ringer because it's just it's they do such a good job with movie podcasts, but you know they when they did their podcast about both Godfather and Godfather Two, it's like you the more you listen to just anyone talk about those two movies, you just realize how just absolutely evil Michael Corleone was, and so when I made these lists. It was like this. The list started Hans Gruber number one, and started I started adding other people. But then the more I thought about it, I was like Hannibal Lecter and Michael Corleone are both just they're more evil. They're just more evil characters, and the and so ultimately I ended up putting them ahead of them. But you just like you said, you know Hans Gruber might be one of the all time favorite villains in movie history. So it's it's easy to put him at number one um, and and justify it. But when I when I was trying to rank them, I was like well. My rationale is both Hannibal Lecter and Michael Corleone are, are more evil, so that that's how they got the the nod over Hans Gruber.
0: Raymond, so do you do you both have Hannibal Lecter at number two though? I mean, yeah, right. Both of you have Hannibal Lecter at number two, right?
2: Yes, uh, Lecter's two. Yeah.
0: And then you and I have Hans Gruber, and then Raymond. But you both have Spacey at number eight too, both of you.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yep.
0: Nice. Those are some nice ties. We got got, a, got a, several ties in there. But uh yeah, man. Really good list, guys. Ray, how do you feel now that you've heard all the lists?
1: Um I could easily do this again and rearrange maybe mm-hmm. two or three characters. Yeah. Uh you know, just cuz uh you know, I again, like going through 40 years worth of film history is is time consuming. And, uh, you know, I didn't I didn't remember everybody. You know, there's people you guys mentioned that I I didn't remember. You know, I I couldn't either I didn't either I didn't find the the film title in time because, you know, I don't remember what year certain films came out. Um, So in in retrospect, you know, this is such a there's more names on the list than I thought um, when I started. And even now that we've gone through it. I think you could easily do this again, and I could
0: rearrange at least four or five names on that list. Yeah, that's kind of the thing, right? I kind of feel that same way, right? Like just kind of given your mood, and when you have to kind of finally solidify the list for the night, you just go, "Okay, this is what I'm rolling with." Right. You know, but but depending, you know, a year from now, we might have a completely yeah. different feeling about all these lists. What about I you, Candlestick? Well, oh, I pardon. I
1: even had Michael Corleone on my list um, when I first writ, writ, wrote it. But then when I thought when I settled, um, when I kind of settled in a little bit more on the list, I pulled him off um, and put Hans Gruber at number one. Michael Corleone was my number one at first because I thought, well, it's pretty, pretty crazy, diabolical, diabolical character. But I really like Hans Gruber more. I was like, you know, I, I just I have a more fond memories, even though I love um, both uh, the first two Godfathers um but um i did kind of i didn't want to bleed too much into the 70s because i didn't have an extensive you know i don't have an uh, a huge watch list uh, from that era of film um uh, just because i was born in 81 so a lot of my f- f- memories st- stem from the 80s obviously naturally um so so that that's why i did that but i uh, i did consider the corleones i considered uh, actually robert young robert de niro and um
0: uh um what's his name Marlon Brando Marlon Brando Oh Marlon Brando Uh the the reason I didn't was for what I had mentioned to you guys too I would I wanted the Corleones in there and I easily could have put them in there uh but the same thing I was like well they they are they're they're still treated as the protagonists even though they are villains in it and for sure especially if you go if you go Michael Corleone's from where he was in part 1 to where he is at the end of part 2 it it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty dark road so I I, com- I think you're com- you're completely justified in that pick, but that was my only reason. I was like, ah, but if the for me personally, if the movie is showing the villain as the prota- in the protagonist's role, then I then I'm not gonna go with them. Uh, but same, if I had, if I would have if I had if I if I wasn't holding myself to that rule, I probably would have put Michael Corleone at number one or two. Yeah, like it w- it would have probably been identical to yours. It would have been Gruber Lecter, Corleone. You know, for so sure. So,
2: in that rationale, do, do you don't see Denzel as the protagonist because it's, you see Ethan Hawke as the protagonist in that. Yeah, Ethan Hawke's. Because I mean, even though he sure. was intense from jump, uh, that's that's one for me. That's it's interesting because it's like you're you're bought in from the very beginning in, and you don't know he's evil at first in in, in that movie because like um, the first thing that came to mind when you guys both brought him up was that that opening sequence in the coffee shop any other actor makes that scene a boring scene Denzel makes it the most intense job interview you've ever seen and all it all he is is reading the newspaper and and he turns that into like this like you you're on edge and you're on eggshells from now for everything he says you're like I don't know how to respond you know and it's like but it you, but you're you're completely sucked in you're like, okay, I'm I'm gonna ride with this guy because he's definitely gonna teach me some things, you know? Um, yeah, right, right, definitely. Um, but
0: yeah, no, he's definitely the antagonist because the the three act story structure that Ethan Hawke follows is the is is what you know the the, the action is happening to him. He must he has to get through. The inciting incident. He has to get through. You know the 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 climax of the first act. The second act. Da, da da da. He's the one that's going through the the three act journey. You know the hero's journey through the three act structure. Um. So, but but it is. I do I do agree with you that they they don't let you know that. Washington is the antagonist at first, and that's that's also the mark of really good writing, right? They kind of mask it, and you're not really sure where. Okay, what exactly is going to happen on this training day, you know? And I I didn't see that movie in the theaters. I'm pretty sure I saw that on video, so I wasn't even super familiar with it. Um, I I, I kind of got to see that movie in real time and learn what was happening in real time, which made it more enjoyable for me. Yeah, well, good job, guys. Uh, next. Kaunosak will let us know, let the audience know what is going to be the next round on our top 11 tournament. What's the
2: next group of villains we're going to be we're going to be competing with? So the uh, the order as as I have it and you know, we can we can always tweak it if we need to, but um I have the top 11 superhero villains um on deck and then in the hole would be the top 11 sci-fi fantasy villains and then the fourth uh um The cleanup hitter would be the top 11 horror villains. Nice. Okay, so next up is top 11
0: superhero villains. And then that's followed up with our top 11 sci-fi villains, uh, a.k.a. aliens, (laughs) non-human villains. And then top 11 horror, horror villains, which are... Half, half human. We're not. No one's really sure. Sometimes, no one's really sure where those guys fall under. A are we gonna, are we
1: gonna fuse uh, fantasy and sci-fi together?
2: I think so. Yeah, I would. I would think there's so many superhero movies at this point that basically anything that's anything that doesn't categorize anything you don't categorize as superhero would then fall under sci-fi fantasy. Yeah, yeah, I think that makes the most sense. Right? Ulti- ulti- sci ultimate, Ultimately, it's like we got to break up Marvel and Star Wars. <laughs> you know, you know <laughs> that, that 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 that's a, if you're if you're not sure, it's like if it, if it would be a Marvel film, it's superhero. If it would be a Star Wars film, it's sci-fi fantasy.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that's the easiest way to go about it. All right, so concludes another edition of the Top Eleven Podcasts. We are—I was going to say we're the voice of the Bay, but we're not really. When we're doing Top Eleven Podcasts. What are we the voice of, Candlestick? We're, we're the voice of the moviegoer. Voice of the movie goer. Right now we're the voice of the moviegoer. And I'm your host, Rudy the III. and with me is my brother, my co-host. Brandon the First, baby. And our esteemed co-hosts. Candle stick will. Boom! We'll see you next time. Same gold cast time, same gold cast channel.
2: This is, is the gold cast.